Welcome to the Indie Kid Lit Podcast. Join Marty Dumas and Elena Page on their quest to help children's and middle grade authors find the right audience and sell more books. Hi, and welcome to the Indie Kid Lit Podcast. I'm Marty Dumas. And I'm Elena Page. And today we're joined by another wonderful and special guest, Jessica Brody, who is an author, screenwriter, and story coach. So um, bear with me because she's written so many amazing things and I'm going to say them all out loud. So Jessica Brody is the author of more than 17 novels for teens, tweens, and adults, including The Geography of Lost Things, The Chaos of Standing Still, A Week of Mondays, 52 Reasons to Hate My Father, Better You Than Me, the three books in the Sci-Fi Unremembered trilogy and the forthcoming Sky Without Stars, a sci-fi reimagining of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, co-written with Joanne Rendell. She's also the author of the Descendants School of Secrets series based on the hit Disney Channel original movie Descendants, which my daughter almost fainted when I told her about, and the Lego Disney Princess chapter books. Jessica's first non-fiction book, Save the Cat, writes a novel, a plotting guide for novelists released in October 2018. Mine is already filled with graffiti because it's that good. And Jessica's books have been translated and published in over 23 countries. And Unremembered and 52 Reasons to Hate My Father are currently in development as major motion pictures. We're not working on her own novels. Jessica teaches online writing workshops at udemy.com, which is where I discovered her. And she lives with her husband and three dogs near Portland in Oregon. Wow, what a bio. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for, you know, bearing with all those titles. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well done. Tell us a bit about your writing journey. Oh, well, you know, I think my writing journey is is similar to a lot of people's in that I had another job, um, which for me was a financial analyst, and I was writing on the side, um, trying to get published. And, uh, and then I got this sort of fortunate experience of being laid off, which doesn't sound fortunate, but uh, it ended up being kind of fortuitous for me because um, I was laid off, and, and during that time I decided to finish my novel. And I, um, I ended up actually getting a lot of rejections and and uh, a lot of false starts, a lot of failures. I rewrote that novel several, several times. And um, it sort of wasn't until I found that Save the Cat method, which I then adapted later for novelists. I can talk more about that later. But um, I found the Save the Cat method and I used it to rewrite my current manuscript. And I ended up getting an agent and a book deal with that, uh, with that version of the manuscript. And I've just been writing ever since. So yeah, that's, that's the short version. <laughs> well, the, um, the book is like amazing. Like I actually, I think the yeah. first how to book that I read was the save the cat original one. And it was fantastic. Like it did sort of blow my mind, but then I sort of couldn't apply it for some reason. It was almost like I thought, I'm not sure how to apply that to books. So I went off and did other things, but when I recently, and I did only recently, but I've devoured it, um, found your book. And I love that the tagline is the last book on novel writing you'll ever need. And I know it sounds like I'm sucking up, but honestly, I think I really believe that 
Well, the thanks. We stole that from the screenwriting one. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the screenwriting one says the last book on screenwriting you'll ever. Oh, so, oh there you go. I thought we you sort of were like, well, I guess well, we need a we need a subtitle. So that one sounds good. Um, well, thank you. I'm I'm really pleased. I mean, we've been getting such amazing feedback. It's only been out for a month now, and I like the. I, I pretty much cry on a daily basis because I get these amazing tweets and emails from people saying I couldn't figure out how to you know, my second act of my book and, or I, my book was broken and I couldn't figure out why and now it's fixed. And I, I just like, oh, it makes me feel so just emotional to know that this book is out there helping people pursue their passions and, and write these, I'm sure, amazing books. And so um, it's just really, it's been really rewarding. But mm. if I can just, I know Marty wants to ask a question. One more, Marty, one more, and then I'll give you the, the I was going to say the remote, the talking stick. <laughs> yeah, we clearly haven't, like, done this in a while, <laughs> the remote. <laughs> I've got the remote control. Um, it's funny. We're always talking over each other because we're on different continents, you see. Yeah. So there's a there's like the gap. It's crazy. It's crazy. But we, we do get there in the end. We all get our questions in. I I just wanted um, to also say, having done a few of your Udemy courses, what I love about your approach, and if you can talk to this a little bit, is how how much you simplify things and make it really practical that even like a dumb person like me can like, like I understand. I could have read it in another book or someone else could have told me. But when Jessica tells me, I'm like, oh, is that what we're doing? Um, <laughs> You know, is that part of why you wrote the book? Tell me a bit about that. Um, well, thank you for that. I already told Elena before we started that I was going to hire her as my marketing manager. And apparently she's, like, really applying well for the job. I mean, um, this is so great. I, I'm – well, thank you for that. I, You know, it's interesting. I don't never heard anybody uh, tell me before that I, that I simplify things in a in – a, effective way so i'm really excited to hear that um i think i i think i just kind of try to teach it the way that i understand it and i like to simplify things um so with with the save the cat method i you know when i first read the original screenwriting book i honestly felt like i had stumbled upon some sort of secrets of the universe like that is that's the story i tell but it really felt that way i remember i remember being like does everyone know about this like because if they did, I feel like everybody would be able to write a novel. Um, and even though it wasn't even written for novels, it was just, it was written for screenwriters. But I, I felt like it was really breaking down the fundamentals of storytelling. And in a way that I had never seen before. I was sort of like you. I had read a, or dabbled in a bunch of other books. I would taken a few screenwriting courses or and, and craft courses. And I could never quite understand it the way Blake Snyder explained it. And so... That was sort of my introduction to how to break down story in a simplistic way so that, you know, people who did not make it their life work to understand story could follow it. And I think that's was sort of my first step in that direction of trying to simplify things for writers um, because it was done for me. And then, you know, when I set out to it, it was a gradual process, I, I started using Save the Cat that I started adapting it for novels. And then I started posting my beat sheets online so that other novelists could maybe find them and, and see that this method worked. And then the, the people at uh, Save the Cat, so there's a team of people that have kept Blake Snyder's message alive. He unfortunately passed away in 2009. 
Um, and there's this great team of people that have been keeping this whole idea of Save the Cat alive. And they contacted me and asked if they could post my beat sheets on their blog. And I was like, I was sort of starstruck. I was like, oh my God, I just saved the cat wants to post my blogs. Like it was, it was like meeting your favorite. I mean, almost like meeting Blake, the, the, the original author. Um, so I, they did. And then they got such great responses of authors going, I'm so glad you did this. I've been, you know, I've been wondering if other people have been using these for novels. And I think at that point, the team realized that there were novelists out there who either wanted to use it and couldn't or had already been using it, but not maybe not fully grasping it. And that's when we got together and started teaching a workshop, which I did for many years. And that's where I sort of collected a lot of um, struggles. I sort of being, being teaching the workshops and sitting down with writers, I was able to see how how they were struggling with this method and how I could help them like, and help them understand. And it gave me insights to the method that I'd never known before in just helping other people grasp it. So that eventually all of that kind of collected into this idea of writing a book. And then came the challenge of, of sort of reading as many books throughout time as I could and trying to find the ones that I, I firmly believe that this method, this 15 beats that are, um, that the save the cat method is really all about. It's, it's about these, same 15 beats that are found in every story ever told. Um, I believe that they are in every story ever told, even if they're not as, an example is not as shining bright of an example, I can find them in all stories because it is really a blueprint for story. Um, and so I've set out to kind of look for those stories that really exemplified it the best. And those 10 books are now featured in uh, save the cat. So, yeah. So, um, I basically broke down those 10 stories that I think really best exemplified the beats, the 15 beats. And I put them in this book, um, just to kind of show that it wasn't just me who was doing this. It was other authors that are using this template without even knowing they're using it. Cause I, I guarantee not all those authors I, I featured were like set, sitting down with the save the cat book. But I think that sort of proves that it's not really a formula that you have to follow. It's a formula or a template that already exists that authors have stumbled upon for years and they just maybe didn't know how to present it in this, in this way. So I think that's why it resonated the best with me is that it wasn't inventing anything. It was just finding something. It was discovering this, what I call the secret storytelling code that is behind and underneath all the, all the best novels. Yeah. So I'm on the other side um, from Elena, who is like fangirled extra hard already. And she was like gushing before we got on the air. And uh, you you should definitely hire her. You're like totally going to waste an opportunity if you don't harness that. So like we'll work that out afterwards. Um, I think that um, a lot of what you just said really resonated with me. And I wonder what it is about, this is totally on the side, but I wonder what it is about the screenwriting that really helps to bring that forward. Cause I, the first thing that I, I ever came across that really helped to solidify, not just cause I, I we all as humans have sort of an, not innate, but a taught, like an early taught understanding of story, right. Mm -hmm. But maybe not like have all the points of it crystallized. But the thing that brought that for me was Robert McKee's story, um, which, like also is not meant for novelists, like it's mm -hmm. totally meant for screenwriters. Um, and then um, a friend of mine who um, uh, is a novelist and um, 
uh, for my birthday a couple of years ago gave me a copy of Save the Cat. And I was like, oh, this is like so similar. Like, I mean, not exactly the same, but like very, very similar. But again, Save the Cat is written for, it's for screenwriters. And so then as you're thinking about how you would specifically adapt this for novelists, right? Um, you, you said that you're using novel examples instead of like screenwriting examples. Are there other key things that like a person like me can know ahead of time before grabbing a copy of the book? Everybody's gonna grab a copy of the book. You don't have to worry about that. Like people are gonna be like, oh my gosh, and they're gonna <laughs> grab a copy of that book. Um, but before we grab a copy of the book, are there things that um, are key differences between the screenwriting version and the new um, Save the Cat writes a novel? version that might be helpful for us? Yeah, I mean, there are key differences and then there's not. It's it's sort of an interesting, it's a really interesting question that I've been trying to come up with a really great answer for and I have yet to do it, so maybe this it's will be the time. Us. That's be it, exactly. <laughs> right right um, no, I mean, it's, it's, the storytelling code is the same. You know, it's like, it's a, here's a story, whether you're writing it in a novel format or you're writing it as a screenplay. Um, I think to go back to something you said earlier, which I thought was interesting, is that this this sort of storytelling code has been brought to the surface through movies more so than through books. And I think that's just because movies are more accessible and visual. So these and shorter, obviously, um, to watch a you know movie, it takes two hours to read a book. It takes a lot longer. And so I think those kind of overlapping beats that we're seeing across story like a you know like a catalyst and a midpoint twist and then all is lost and a you know and a break into act three like i think those are becoming more obvious when we watch movies um because we're able to watch them quicker and and the visual aspect of movies are, are sort of bringing those to the surface more for us um that being said you know like i i went back and and studied books from like the, the 18th century um i went back and studied the like all the austins and the you know and dickens and um 1984 and so and i still found those things in there they just probably weren't as obvious to us because we weren't either weren't looking for them or we weren't really studying literature for plot we were studying it for other things um but you're right in that it, it's this you know this method is sort of one way to explain it versus like i haven't read mckee actually have it over here you can see it um, yeah i haven't i haven't read his um but i hear that also you know the the hero's journey is a similar and i haven't read that either but it's 12 steps and this is 15. and i think it's just a slightly different way of breaking it down which is the same again the same thing um it's just told us slightly differently but in terms of this particular book and why it works I think better for novelists is novelists have a lot more pages to deal with than screenwriters. Like, you know, we're dealing with not only do screenwriters have less pages, you know, they have 110 and most of us are, are dealing in the two, three, 400, 400 pages. Um, but our pages are denser. <laughs> you know, we've got like a lot more text on each page. So I think coming at it from that point of view and from I, I write novels, so I have this experience of like, how do you fill those pages? Um, because there are beats in the 15 beat, um, in the 15 beat template, there are some beats that are like one scene, um, like a catalyst, you know, like one thing happens to the hero and it sends them in a new direction. And then a break into two is like one scene. It's one thing that the, the hero does to move into the new direction. 
But then there's these longer beats. Um, I call them multi-scene beats instead of single scene beats, like the fun and games, which is everything that happens from the time the hero makes the decision to break into two and like goes on their new journey, everything that happens till the midpoint. So we're talking like 20% of the novel to 50% of the novel. And that's 30% of your novel. And so that's a lot of pages. And a screenwriter is dealing with more like, like 30 pages and we're dealing with like hundreds of pages. So I think coming at it from that perspective, I think gives me a unique view on how to, how to fill those pages with dynamic things. Um, then of course there's the, you know, the novel examples that, that we, we talked about. But then one thing that I think is really helping people is um, novelists, oftentimes we have to write our own synopses. So whether we are, um, whether we're pitching a book to an agent and we have to write a query letter or we're self-publishing the book and we have to write the, you know, like the Amazon description that's going to go right onto Amazon um, or the, the description that's going to go right onto the back. Like we are our own marketers. And um, I don't know the screenwriting industry that well. So I don't know if screenwriters have this challenge as well. But so what I did was I created out of the 15 beats, I created a synopsis template. And it's basically like, once you figure out the 15 beats of your story, which hopefully after you read the book will be easy. Um, once you figure those out, you can actually like plug and play those beats into a synopsis and you'll have a dynamic, engaging synopsis that you can put into a query letter and you can put into an Amazon description or you can put up on you know, Wattpad or wherever you want your Goodreads, wherever you want your book described. Um, and it will it's automatically designed to grab readers. So that's one element that I thought was very different than the screenwriting version. Um, yeah, that's super cool. And that's that hopefully will help authors not only write their books, but sell them. And it also, you know, works as a, sorry to get like, I start to ramble when I talk about the beats. But, There's uh, no rambling. People hear us all the time. They, they, they came to hear you. It's good. Keep talking. Well, one of the things I really like about the synopsis template as well is it serves as a test for your beats. So if you put these beats into this synopsis template, and the synopsis is feeling flat, like you, you're showing it to some readers and you're saying, how does this half page pair, you know, three paragraph description read to you? And people are going, eh, then you know that there's something wrong with your story and they don't have to read the 300 pages to tell you that. They can sort of go, well, I just feel like, you know, this part is weird. And you look at it and you go, well, that's the fun and games. So apparently my fun and games is weak. Um, so I, I, I do like that that kind of helps you because also as novelists, we have a hard, we have a harder time getting feedback because we have more for people to read. I this love is very true. About the, 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 whether it's a one scene or a two scene that really popped off the page to me. Okay. Okay. I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Double highlight, you know, on that spot. Um, and and then also, the, and I know the original did this as well, but I found it better in yours because you relate it to actual novels. And so your examples are novels. So even, you know, when I read it the first time and it's, you know, it's, I don't know, how old is the book? It's a bit old. So it was 2005, yeah. So. Right. So it was talking about, you know, movies that maybe aren't even contemporary or may not, you know, like if I played one of those for my kids, they'd be like, oh, this is an old fashioned movie. Uh, and I'm sure the model still works. But nonetheless, you know, your brain needs like examples. So you use book examples and then you talk about and this is the like I almost liked it more importantly than the 
the actual structure, the story genre types. Can you talk a bit about those? Because, you know, I'm writing one at the moment and I'm like, so hold on, hold on, which category does it fit in? Because, and you used an example in there where you were writing one of your books and it started off as one and then changed. So talk to us a bit about that. The the genres are are so fun. Um, So I, I like to think of the beat sheet as sort of Save the Cat 101. It's like you come into the method and you just need to figure out your story. You're like, I, I got this idea, I just need to figure it out. Um, and so you come in and you and you tackle the beats, the 15 beats. And these are the this is the template that I've been talking about, the blueprint for story. Um, just so you know that you know that your story is going somewhere, that your hero is transforming, that you're not sticking the, you know, you're not staying in like what I call the status quo world forever. Um, you're actually going somewhere and you're you're mapping out a transformative journey which is what all stories are about, is transformation. So that's what the beat sheet does. And then, and this is the way that the book is structured as well, it's, it's structured to take you in at the level of the hero. So figuring out who's your hero, what do they want, what's their big problem that needs to be fixed by the end, and what do they need to fix that problem. So that's sort of the first level. And then you go into the beats and you, you expand out that hero and problem into these 15 beats. Um, and then the next level, after you've sort of had a better idea of what your story is and where it's going, is what are called the Save the Cat genres. So um, the the big thing I like to say about the genres is these are not genres like you know, like sci-fi, comedy, drama. Those are genres of tone. And the Save the Cat genres are genres of story. So they're kind of like story archetypes or just story types. Um, for example, there's a story type called dude with a problem and it always requires a um, each, sorry, each genre has three genre ingredients. So they're sort of like checklists and you can use those ingredients to kind of figure out if your story belongs in one genre or another, or if you do want to write a story of this genre, you know, I have to do a, B and C. Um, so like a dude with a problem is always an innocent hero um, who's thrust into a sudden event without asking for it and has no sort of responsibility for it. So they're, it's like wrong place, wrong time, wrong guy, wrong time, whatever. So it's an innocent hero thrust into um, a very serious life or death situation. Um, and there's always a, like a life or death battle at stake. So great examples are like The Hunger Games and The Martian. Um, and I actually put um, the hate you give into this because the life or death battle is about her neighborhood. Um, and her um, uh, her community. So that's like a dude with a problem. And then there's um, a genre called the Golden Fleece, which are where you'd find all of the road trips and heists and quests. So this is like uh, The Wizard of Oz and uh, Ready Player One and The Grapes of Wrath. And you know, every anytime there's a team that's on a road or some metaphorical road going after a treasure or a prize or a birthright. Um, game, a Game of Thrones is also a golden fleece um, because it's, it's all these people going after this one prize. Um, so the genres are so fun. And I will say uh, they gave me the most trouble in writing the book because I, I try to give you examples. When I break down each genre, I try to give you a lot of examples of books in that genre so that you can go out and study those books and you're on your own and, and try to identify the genre ingredients and, and things. But I had to know where all those books fit before I gave them to you. So 
Um, that was a really big undertaking. And I basically have this massive spreadsheet of books from like the 1500s to like now in every possible genre of tone. And I had to sort them all and, and they moved around a lot. And I think that's a lesson in, to go back to what you were saying about the genres are there to help you learn and to help you develop your story. They're not there so that, you know, you put your book in a genre and then you're locked there forever. And like, everyone's going to say, well, this was a bad dude with a problem or whatever, you know, like that's not what they're for. So, and, and they get, they can get a little bit mushy at times. Like there's books that fit into multiple genres. Um, and you, it's sort of the goal is like with the genres is to find the genre where your story fits best. And, and sort of represents the type of story you want to tell so that you can use other books in that genre to help you. Um, so I moved things around a lot. I had a lot of debates with other Save the Cat writers, just like, no, this is a golden fleet. No, it's an institutional. Like we had lots of debates. Um, and like you said, there's been books of mine that have changed uh, genres a lot. But the genres, you know, I'm still learning their power. Um, I'm writing a... A, se a sequel to um, my look. Well, it's over here. I'll get it. I'm writing a. This book is the retelling of Les Misérables. Uh, you have to say I, the title out loud because everybody can't see that gorgeous oh, sorry. cover. I'm holding up a book for those of you listening. <laughs> um, it is called Sky Without Stars, and it is the it is a sci-fi reimagining of Les Misérables. So we're my co-author and I are writing the sequel right now. It's called Between Burning Worlds. And we were having so much so many problems with it. We were like rewriting it, rewriting it, and refiguring out the catalyst, and refiguring out the break into two. And finally, like, we were just sitting around talking about it, and she said something like, "Well, the whole story is about you know this guy going after this weapon." And and that's probably a spoiler that I'm not supposed to give away yet. But she, <laughs> it's she all good. We'll still read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody will remember that. Um, she said that, and I went, oh, so it's a golden fleece. And, and then we both went, oh. <laughs> and that one definition is has caused all these other pieces to fall into place. And we're like, okay, well, if it's a golden fleece, then the catalyst is the introduction of the weapon. And the break into two is the decision to go on the road to get the weapon. Like, it, it caused all these things to fall into place. So I'm still like in awe of the genres. I still think they're just like lifesavers. And I, I just had this experience like last week. So. so I love hearing you like talk organically about how you're using this as a diagnostic tool, which is wonderful. That's, that's amazing. Cause we all need diagnostic tools. Yeah. You know, you, you spit out a story and then you're like, wait, wait, yeah. right. <laughs> there's something else going on with this, but I would love to know how, this style has impacted your process? Like what does your writing process look like now that you've got all of these things um, kind of embedded in your brain? Well, my process, I mean, it's changed a little bit since, it, since the beginning of my writing career, but not that much because I, you know, I started out, well, my, I started out with a hot mess of a novel that never got, you know, you never went anywhere. And it wasn't until I found the Save the Cat method that I rewrote it and, like I said, and um, and turned it into a less of a hot mess. Um, so, but ever since then, and figuring out that I really, um, I really resonated with this method, and this method made sense to me, and I could use it, I understood it, and could use it in a logical way. 
Um, ever since that, my process has pretty much been, I come up with an idea and I basically tease it out using the 15 beats. And that's how I, I am a plotter, but I do um, strongly believe that Save the Cat can be used by plotters and pantsers, those who don't plot, who's right by the seat of their pants. And I'll, I can talk a little bit about that um, afterwards. But so I plot, uh, that's my method, and I use the beat sheet to create my outline. Um, and uh, so I, I, I kind of go through the steps that are outlined in the book, are outlined in the book, which is sort of why I wrote the book in the way I wrote it. It was like, here's what I do. Um, and I also have a, there's a chapter at the end that sort of goes deeper into my process a little bit about which beats do I tackle first and which questions do I ask myself as I start to write. But I usually don't start writing until I have a beat sheet. Um, and then my big thing is like, the beats change. Do not get locked. If you're a plotter, do not get locked into an outline that you will not, you know, that you refuse to stray from because it's going to cause you a lot of headache. So my big thing is I set the beats up. I start going. The story starts unfolding. The character starts revealing itself, her, her himself to me. And then I go, okay, well, that beats got to change um, based on what I just discovered. And then I go and I rebeat. Um, but I always have a working beat sheet in my either in my head or on paper as I write. Okay, that's that's great. And I love that um, that you like sort of have a section of that in the book. And like, I just, I'll be able to like check it out for myself on, yay. I guess, Thursday? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. You yeah, Thursday. You won Hillary, <laughs> well, let's see. You did, I love that, yeah, it's good. I love to be, no, 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 because like, truthfully, we ask people for advice all the time. And um, often, like if a person sits down and writes a book that really essentially is their process, they're giving you a good chunk of their brain <laughs> and many, many hundreds of hours of their like time and expertise, probably for about 20 bucks. And that was way less. So <laughs> like, it's totally worth it. Like just to be able to like, you, you can't pay, like that's, that's minimum wages, right? Like that's, that's very, that's very little to be able to like catch somebody's like full thought process. Uh, yeah, totally, totally I'll grab that. But I was cutting you off from a thing, Elena, you can jump in with your thing. No, not at all. Um, but I will jump in since you've given me the talking stick. <laughs> we need a talking stick. Um, oh my gosh, now you have me thinking, how can I make a digital talking stick? I bet I could figure it out. Let me think about that. Yeah, you can do that. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, okay, go. <laughs> I think also for me reading this book now after having written a certain number of books myself, that even though you're right, we can cross those story genres, but I think also for kids' books and particularly even younger kids' books, that to be to have real clarity about which story genre it is will produce a better book for kids because kids like the simplicity of what they're reading. You know, they like some of the really you know bestseller books that I've seen out there, like Diary of a Sixth Grade Ninja, right? For example, it, it you know it really focuses. On and it's quite simple. It's this one really simple story plot, you know, of this new kid who's come to the school, I don't know, I'm assuming maybe institutionalised um, and, you know, is going to try to fit in, you know, that sort of story. And when you're really clear on that, I think even more so for kids' books, your book can turn out better. 
Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but that's absolutely true. And 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 I did find that when I would categorize the younger books, they were definitely easier to categorize. Um, and that's probably why that is the case. Yeah, awesome. Um, okay, any more book? Any more questions about the the book itself, Marty? Or can I jump to something else? I think we should jump into the the coursework now. Yeah, because I um I've done not all of jessica's courses though i'm being very slack i should have i was gonna say yeah you're, you're starting to sound a little stalkerish like we're going beyond full fan and into a new territory <laughs> like my model students i love it like, i bring her in with the courses and then i get her to read the book and like, yeah. oh, great it's like i need to model you i need to create like a thousand of you <laughs> well i'm just a genuine fan and you know when i wrote to you and said like i thought i can't write to the Jessica Brody, <laughs> I, I did. And then I pranced around the house and went like, nah, Jessica Brody said she'd be on the podcast. <laughs> I really did that. So anyway, see, you're a superstar. So just never you know, <laughs> underestimate the a power that you have to change somebody's life, right? Um, but honestly, the, the courses again, because they're, because for me, you're really in the trenches and a lot of people give how to, but they sort of try to be, I don't know, maybe like give sort of, you know, a big umbrella. It's like you've gone, hey, I've had this chapter that I can't fix and this is how I fixed it. And I'm like, whoa, that is a good tip. But I think I'm remembering the, the one where you said, you know, like rewrite that paragraph or that bit that you're stuck on before you send it to your editor. And actually this, you'll see the problem with it, really practical um, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I'm fangirling again, so I'm just going to go to a proper question. And my question is, one of your courses, which is how to come up with high concept ideas for your books, and I think it's a topic that's not talked about very often because we all think we have these amazing ideas, but t talk a bit about what a high concept idea is and how it can be even useful to indies, not just people who are trying to get a traditional publisher. Sure. Well, and thanks again for all taking all those courses. I'm very, I'm very honored. Um, I, yeah, so I, uh, I've always had ideas that fit into the category of a high concept. And I never realized that until uh, my agent said to me one day, um, my previous agent that I have from the one I have now, um, I, I pitched them a new idea. And I said, what do you think of this? And he goes, Jessica, I love how your ideas can be pitched in one sentence and I can like take that sentence and go to your and go to your editor and pitch that in one sentence. And then I can go like he was like, you're you're making my job easier, sort of the way he was getting what he was getting at. Um, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I sort of never thought that that was a thing or anything. And then um, the word high concept is fl floats around Hollywood a lot more than it does around books, but I started to hear people call my ideas high concept, um, particularly my film agent would pitch it to uh, producers and they would say, oh, she's written this high concept. And I had, I didn't even know what that meant. So I did some research and, you know, the basic definition of high concept is a, an idea that can be pitched in one sentence um, and that the recipient of that sentence automatically sort of gets why it's compelling. Um, so. So for example, a great high concept idea pitch would be, you know, an orphan boy discovers he has magical powers and is when he's recruited to attend a school for witches and wizards. 
like immediately you go, even if you, you know, live under a rock and have never heard of that story before, you immediately go, oh, wow, that's cool, right? Um, so I call it like the coolness factor. I say it's it's immediately recognizable as cool. Um, and cool doesn't necessarily mean good because, you know, like a, a girl who has to fight 12, 24 other, 23 other teenagers in an arena to the death, like not exactly cool, but you immediately understand why it's compelling. Um, so I started to do a little bit more research and I realized like, okay, that's sort of the Hollywood simple definition. But then I started to look at what are these books and movies that are selling really well that are people are just instantly responding to like girl on the train and, and Harry Potter and the hunger games and um, the Martian and, and, and things like that. Like what are these really blockbuster ideas having, what do they have in common? And I started to break down sort of the way Blake Snyder breaks down story in Save the Cat. I started to try to codify or codify these elements that make up a really compelling idea or what I like to call a blockbuster idea. Um, and, and combining that with this idea of high concept that you can pitch it in one sentence, um, I broke it down into, I think there's four ingredients. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't looked at my course in a while. <laughs> I think I break it down into four, yeah, four ingredients uh, that I call ingredients of a high concept idea. Um, and those ideas are like having a fish out of water element. So like a character who is somewhere where they don't belong and don't fit in is immediately grasping and compelling. Like when you think about the Martian and you think it's a guy stuck on Mars, like guys, men aren't supposed to be on Mars. It's automatically out of, he's out of his element. Or, you know, there's a reason why Harry Potter came from the muggle world and not from the wizarding world because he's out of his element when he goes to Hogwarts. So um, like, that's one of the big ingredients. Um, having sort of a, um, a looming threat is always, that's kind of built into the concept is always a, a, a good thing to have. Um, so I try to, break down what's making these stories so big and blockbuster and then kind of combining that with the way I come up with ideas which had been identified as high concepts by other people um and that created the course uh, it's called yeah. develop blockbuster story ideas that sell yeah that sell that's what this show's about people that sell <laughs> <laughs> that's the point um that's that's terrific do you have any questions on that Marty? No, it sounds like a super, um, it's, an I, well, yes. Yeah. So we have the component of us, which is that we want people to be able to sell more books by finding their audience, right? And so then we do have like at least a huge contingent of people who are wanting their audience to be the blockbuster audience. But mm -hmm. I wonder if there is, I feel like there's probably a place for that, even if you're not looking for your audience to be the blockbuster audience. But what do you think about that, Jessica? Well, I think you're sort of, I think maybe you're getting into getting, touching upon this idea that like, there's some writers who don't want to write commercial fiction. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's obviously like, that's fine. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's like, everyone has to write commercial fiction or die. Um, I, but I do think that regardless of whether you're striving to have that blockbuster commercial idea or whether you're wanting to write like, a, you know, an, an important literary fiction novel that, um, that, you know, resonates with people, I still think that you need 
certain elements of this blockbuster idea in order to bring people into the story. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I'm famous for saying like, you can have the most brilliant, beautiful, poetic prose in the world, but if something doesn't happen by page 50, people stop reading. Um, and that thing that happens by page 50 is usually what's called in Save the Cat, it's usually called the break into two. It's where the hero does something new and and leaves their comfort zone and does something different. And I think you find that even in the even in the really like literary scene, in the literary titles, you're still finding that there is, a, the, at least the ones that are doing well, um, you're still finding these moments of, the character breaking out of their comfort zone and doing something different, whether that's on a scope of the Martian or a much smaller scope. Um, so I, I like to tell people that you can write whatever book you want, but if you want to, if you want to have a career as a writer and, and again, not a necessity, some people just like to write to write and I commend them on that. I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, but if your goal is to have a career as a writer, there are certain elements that you need to have in at least your pitch to sell that book, uh, um, whether that be to uh, a, directly to a reader or to an agent or to a publisher. Um, because again, you can have the most beautiful prose in the world, but if nobody picks it up, it's sort of you know it's such a waste of your talent. So I like to say that the the elements of story and the elements of the blockbuster idea can be applied to any type of novel. It's sort of the matter of degree and the matter of sort of sensationalizing it so that it's not, you know, if you're not wanting to write something like the hunger games, then you would probably not do the elements would probably not be as big as those, um, as those elements, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it totally makes sense. And I'm always super fascinated. I a book club. It's not my book club. It's a friend's book club that I, like attend mm -hmm. <laughs> happily. Um, and we try to read all of the books that have won the National Book Awards, not all of them, because there's a lot of potential National Book Awards, right? Mm -hmm. um, besides the ones that are the actual National Book Awards. But um, uh, mm -hmm. it's always so interesting because a lot of our conversation ends up being about how much, how often those novels are not stories at all, um, how they are very long, really lovely prose, but essentially vignettes that are mm -hmm. 200 pages. Um, and I dare say that a lot of people don't finish them. And a lot of people in our group say that they wouldn't have finished them if we weren't coming <laughs> together to talk about it, because yeah. there's the, the drive of story was not in it amongst the prose. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I was just interested to hear what you would say about that bit. So well, I, I Oh, no, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think that's a really, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I think, you know, one of the exceptions that I love to talk about is Robin Benway's So Far From the Tree, which won the Young Adult Award last year, and she's a friend of mine. And um, she has written a lot of commercial fiction. And this one is, you know, this beautiful, uh, beautiful story, but it is definitely has these kind of commercial beats to it um, in terms of this character going on this journey to find her long lost siblings. Um, and, and I put it into the institutionalized genre, by the way, um, in Save the Cat, um, because it's dealing with the, the institution of family and what that means to this, these three characters. Um, but I think she's a great example to study of 
you can you can win awards and be like acclaimed and still have a fantastic story and i finished that story in like a heartbeat i mean that was a really great story so um i think that there's a happy medium for both and i think your story and your book and your success is gonna uh, highly depend on on you having all parts you know the, all the elements together yeah yeah. So we are running out of time, but oh, we're not yeah. quite out of time yet. Elena's like really sad for people <laughs> who are not. This is incentive for people to go to the YouTube <laughs> videos um, so that they can see Elena's extra sad face as I said that. That's definitely worth a look. <laughs> um, but Elena has at least three more questions, I'm sure. <laughs> Two. Okay. I overshot that one. Helena has two more questions. Um, uh, give it a go. Okay. So my first quick thanks, Maddie. Aren't you nice? Been so nice with the time today. <laughs> um, so the story, a story is always about transformation. And in order for that transformation to happen, we have to be really clued into our character's, you know, emotional set, you know, what's happening for them. And how that, how do you do that as an author? Like, how do you dial into where the emotions of your character are at any moment in your story so that you can really bring that to life? Um, that's a great question. And I always, always go back to these two fundamental things that I actually force you to figure out at the beginning of the Save the Cat method. Um, and that's the wants and the needs. Um, and so the wants are the physical, external, tangible goals that the hero thinks will fix their life um, versus the needs are the sort of internal, um, uh, I like to say spiritual, not necessarily religious spiritual, but those internal uh, flaws that need to be fixed. So the internal goal um, or the internal lesson that the character needs to learn in order to actually fix so these two go very hand in hand. You know, you've got like, uh, let's say like, um, I, I wrote a book called uh, The Geography of Lost Things, Golden Fleece, um, about a road trip story. Um, the character in this book, Allie, she wants to save her house from foreclosure. Her house is about to be foreclosed on by the bank because her father has been in and out of her life, total deadbeat dad who um, racked up a whole bunch of debt. And her parent and her mom's been trying to get them out from under this debt for years and has finally kind of come to a head and the bank's about to foreclose on the house. So her want is very clear. I want to save my house. And so when her father dies and leaves her his 1968 Firebird convertible, um, her immediate reaction is like, I'm going to sell it because it's worth a lot of money and it's going to help me get what I want. And the character characters always go for what they want first. They never, they never go, you know what? My real life lesson is to like learn how to forgive. And for Allie, her, her life lesson, her need is to actually forgive her father and not, it's not about the house. The house represents the problem and the, the, the immediate fix that she thinks it is, is like, well, I got to save the house. But actually, even if she were to save the house, it doesn't solve anything in terms of what's going on in here. So her need is to is to learn how to understand her father and forgive him. And that's the journey, the real journey she goes on. So um, characters will always try to fix them themselves and their lives through their wants first. So it's really important that you have, when you start out, a very 
tangible, accessible want. Something that the reader is always going to understand. So not only understand what it is, but understand when they get it. So, you know, I hear a lot of people go, well, my hero just wants to be happy. Well, that's great. And don't all heroes want to be happy. But how do we know when he or she gets that? So you, you, you give them something that represents the happiness, right? So anyway, about the emotional, the, the emotions, I am always in the head of, is this a want or is this going after something that's related to the want or is this relating to the need? And, uh, you know, according to the beat sheet, the first half of the story is usually chasing the wants and the second half of the story is usually starting to go towards those needs. So in any moment of the story, I'm usually going, okay, what's happening with those wants and needs? So in any given scene, they should be at least in some way on the path to going after one of those things. And are they getting it? Are they close? Are they failing? Are they, you know, miserable because they had it really close and then lost it? So there's, it's always about where they are in that journey of the wants and the needs. And that helps me focus what they're feeling at those times because we're always going after something we want or we're always trying to fix ourselves in some way and that's always dictating how we're feeling about our day so um heroes i think are are the same awesome yeah it's great advice thank you okay one more okay one more. last one marty's give me a big god what am i gonna do with her, you her smile is very big oh. and I, I don't see this at all i think she always thank you she's oh. always misinterpreting my happiness it's fine go ahead i'm misinterpreting everything time. okay that's all right that's one of my needs i need to work on that i've got it people thank you but right now what i want is to ask my last question <laughs> um way to apply <laughs> wasn't that good yeah i thought that was good i um one of your courses, I'm going back to that again, which I haven't done actually, and I thought maybe you could share some tips as a sort of parting part of your interview is uh, productivity hacks because you are really productive. You're pretty prolific. You've written a lot of books and they've all been, am I right, they've all been traditionally published as yeah. well, um, which is, you know, a long process too in traditional publishing. I think that's amazing that you've done that. Give us some takeaways for how we can all be more productive as writers. Well, I'm I'm disappointed that you haven't taken productivity hacks. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, productivity hacks is my favorite course that I've had out, um, and I think it's because it's the one that sort of I feel most personally has changed my life. Um, I mean, save the cat, of course. Like I, I owe my success to it, but. I had to figure out how to overcome blockages and and motivational issues and focus issues um, for many years. And I've sort of just been doing this trial and error. And then I had this massive paradigm shift in 2015 um, where, and I'll explain what the paradigm shift was in a second, but once I sort of figured out this thing that I was doing horribly wrong and it was crippling my productivity and crippling my creativity and hindering my inspiration and all of those things. And it was making every day like a struggle to write. Once I tweaked that, I, it like was like a flood open, a floodgates open. And it was like everything in my life changed. And from then that point on, I've been writing at four books a year 
Um, I like that one year I wrote four books in a screenplay and I was just like, okay, well, something's, I figured out something here. And that's where I decided to write a productivity hacks course came out a year later. And I, um, because I felt very strongly about sharing this with everyone. And so the shift is really, it's very simple. It's about pro, uh, focus management. And I find that we prioritize the wrong things in our society. We prioritize other people's emails. We prioritize other people's social media posts. We prioritize what the news wants us to see. Um, all of these other voices we're letting into our heads first thing in the morning and we're letting it control what we do first and what we focus on first and where we put our brains first. And I think that every morning we wake up with like a brand new computer. And that's sort of, this is sort of the philosophy behind the whole course. But every morning we wake up with a brand new computer and brand new computers work so well because they don't have a lot of programs running. And every program you open is like flash, lightning fast, right? And effective. So if you look at it that way, what are you opening in the, in the morning? What programs are you opening before you open the writing program? And that was sort of my, the question I asked myself. And I realized like, I don't even, I didn't used to get out of bed until I had like checked email 10 times and checked Facebook check, check, and checked my game scores and my Amazon ranks. And I was like lying in bed for like an hour on my phone, just opening programs literally and figuratively in my head. And by the time I got out of bed, I was like dragging. I didn't want to do anything. I was my, I was flustered. I was scattered. And I honestly, the shift was I moved my phone into another room. And I would not allow myself to look at it until I wrote my 1500 words that day. And it became like, at first, it was like, that's the prize, right? Like, I, I want to check my email. I must have some good news. So I, I have to write before I can do that. So I set up it as like a, as a payoff. And that one shift changed everything. And that sort of opened up all of these other hacks that go along the same line of focus management. Like, what do you want? your brain to do the best. You should do that first. Um, whether that's writing or not, it should be what you do first, as opposed to going, oh, I'm going to see what everybody else is doing and let my brain focus on that. Um, so I used to ask myself in the early stages when it was very hard for me to not check email first thing in the morning, I would, whenever I had temptation to check email, I would say to myself, do you want to be a professional emailer or a professional writer? And of course, you know, the answer is writer. And that would be like, okay, well, then you better do that instead. Um, because you're, you're acting like you want to be a professional emailer in the way that you obsessively go to your email first thing in the morning. So anyway, that was the kind of inspiration behind my shift and the whole um, concept behind Productivity Hacks, which is really a course on focus management, um, as well as some other kind of uh, hacks that have helped me along the way. That's awesome. That's the one course I clearly needed to take first, but I didn't. Because as you were talking about it, I was like, that's exactly how I feel. How did you <laughs> feel that way? Not Marty. She's organized. Because you get no. up so early, though, yeah, Marty. I do so get up early, but it's, it's exactly that thing. But the way that I phrase it is not like the lovely way that she said it. I say, I can only be a good person for a few hours a day. <laughs> and wow. then after that. I have no willpower. I have I no, that. like after that, it's just like diminishing returns. So it's I try true. to do the important stuff first. <laughs> no, but that, that. Is philosophy. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. And they, and they, they have, you know, it's been proven that your willpower goes down throughout the day. 
So you might as well get the, you know, my husband calls it, he, he got this from another blogger or something. He calls it eating the frog. He's like, you eat the frog first. That's the first thing you do should be eat the frog. And if the frog is like the thing you don't want to do. I mean, with writers, that doesn't necessarily translate because hopefully we do want to write. Otherwise, hopefully you love it. And that's yeah, why you're doing you it. it. And he's like, you know, he's in he's in like the business world. And he's like, his whole philosophy is like, whatever that one thing that you've been hanging over your head, you don't want to do. Um, that's the frog. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you eat it first and you get it off your plate. And I think that it does apply to writing, not that we don't want to write, but it does hang over our heads when we don't do it. You know, when all the other things are like, oh God, I still haven't written. Oh God, I still haven't written. And then, so if you do that first, the rest of the day, you feel like like a superstar. You're like, well, I wrote. So, well, so you know. So whatever else happens, I wrote my words today and it's done. So. Yeah, That's I amazing. feel like that a lot. I'm often like, I'll go pick up the kids and they're like, oh, no, did you write, mom? And I'm like, no. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, like, oh, no, she's going to be depressed for the rest of the night. You know, like, yeah. And it's I think it's Brian Tracy. Yeah, Brian Tracy's Eat the Frog. I'm pretty sure he is. I think I've Oh, seen that's him. it. It's Brian Tracy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but that's awesome. thank you so much for being on now yeah this has been wonderful it's been really lovely jessica thank you you guys are amazing interviewers very fun i had a great time <laughs> tell us where well, we can find you your books your courses everything online um i'm at jessicabrody.com and uh that's b-r-o-d-y um i'm at jessica brody on twitter and instagram um and my courses the best way to find all of my courses and get them at a good price um is to go to jessicabrody.com and uh click on a four writers i have a four writers tab that has lots of free advice and lots of stuff for writers blog posts um and you'll see online courses there and you'll get um you'll get some uh, a discount on the courses if you do it that way and all of that will be in our show notes as well if you can't be bothered writing it down because you're going for your walk just come back to your computer get on to www.indiekidlitpodcast.com and you'll find all those links in there and thank you so much for not only writing so wonderfully but then sharing your knowledge with other writers that is amazing we were so lucky to have you on the show and marty can say goodbye and then we're done I think you did all the goodbyes. So oh, we'll just do, um, oh, well, no, because we never even say our, our poor Gmail address. But people do email, somehow find it and <laughs> email us at the email address that does not match our website address because we were very clever when we set the whole thing up. So <laughs> if you were wanting, um, our next episode is our goal setting podcast. And some people have been sharing their goals with us. So if you want to join in on sharing goals with us, but you want it to be um, kind of quiet, like you can totally email us at the indie kid lit podcast at gmail.com. And hopefully we will see everybody very, very soon. Thank you for listening to the Indie Kid Lit Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or review. For episode show notes, visit www.indiekidlitpodcast.com.